when somebody has a different grief, we're not to judge their grief. They're going to do things differently and what works for them. And there's not a linear process. It's not like you go through one, two, three, four, five, right? Everybody goes ups and downs and there's different ways. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Hope Peace Together. This is a show that gets real about mental health struggles and how to overcome them. Here you'll find personal stories, practical tools, and professional insight for the journey towards mental well-being, whether that's for yourself, a loved one, or the community around you. This is a place where hope is definitely alive. Welcome to the show with your host, Sherry Burkhardt. Welcome to the Hope Peace Together podcast. This is your host, Sherry. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the loss of a spouse The grief process can vary with each individual, but sometimes it is just so helpful to find commonalities in a journey similar to yours. It also helps to hear about the certain types of losses because it may help us better support someone in the midst of this experience. I've invited local counselor and fellow nurse Maureen McClellan to talk with us on this topic today. So welcome, Maureen. So tell us a little first to start off about your background and your practice. I am a registered nurse. I graduated from Florida State in 1981, so a long time ago, with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. And so I've been an RN for 40 years. My first job was up in Dallas, and I worked on an oncology floor. Mm -hmm. And so while I was in college, I actually took some classes, a semester class on death and dying by someone who had studied under Dr. Sally Kirioth, who studied under Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I felt prepared to work on an oncology floor with that. And then I got married and I moved to Saudi Arabia and I became a nurse over there for Aramco. And then I had my daughter. I ended up coming back to the States after my husband died. But when I started working in education at Houston Northwest Medical Center, and then I became a school nurse after my daughter. But about the same time she was getting ready to graduate from high school, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And (laughs) so I decided to go back and get a master's and I did it in counseling. And so I've been a counselor, a licensed professional counselor since for the last 14 years, since 2007. I took a couple of years off to become grandma and those types of things. And then I went into private practice in 2018. So you have a lot of different perspectives. Obviously, I didn't realize you did nursing in Saudi Arabia. So you'll have to fill me in on that. But you also have lots of different perspectives to bring to our conversation today because you have the experience around grief as a nurse, like you just mentioned. Then you have your experience as a counselor. But then this is also a personal journey for you, which you alluded to a little. But let's start with that personal experience piece. So grief is always complicated and it's compounded. My first loss would be I had a stillborn son at seven months early on in my marriage. A few years later, my husband died in a car accident while in Indonesia. Like I said, grief compounds each other. So it's just difficult when you lose someone, especially in a car accident, you're not prepared for it. It's very traumatic. We were overseas. The logistics of just bringing his back to the States to be buried here, there was just a lot to go through. And it's difficult because not only did I lose my husband, but I lost my lifestyle. I had no place to live. 
had to make a lot of decisions that normally they tell you not to make in that first year. Loss after a prolonged illness, as you experienced working in oncology, may look a little different than the sudden loss to someone because of a car accident. And that's because there can be a combination of PTSD or post-traumatic stress syndrome on top of the grief. What do you think would be helpful for the audience to know about the different grief experiences? You know, even if you think that you're prepared, you're never prepared. It still hurts and you still have to go through those states. Dr. Kubler-Ross, when she developed those five stages of grief, it was around oncology patients. And so there was the denial and there was the bargaining. When someone dies suddenly, you don't have those two steps. And so you kind of go more into maybe a little denial, but then into the anger and the depression. But I've seen all sorts of people that even when they knew someone was going to pass away, depends the age of the person, Mm -hmm. right? Because if it's someone who's already in their 80s and 90s, they've had a full life and they're more at peace with it. it. Seems so much more unfair when it's someone young. And you even brought a book that talks about the PTSD solution and how sometimes those two things can coincide. So PTSD and grief look a lot alike. And so many times the death is traumatic in itself. So we always have to look at the past experiences in life because they just build on each other. And it's okay to have intense feelings after something traumatic. Losing your spouse at such a young age also brought grief around other things. And when we talked, you mentioned loss of your dreams and milestones that you expected to share with your spouse. How did those affect you? I saw on Facebook, someone talked about this little box. And when you first lose someone, you're, the grief inside this box is really big. And, and it has a little pain button. And it's constantly hitting that pain button. And you're constantly feeling that pain. But in time, that ball gets smaller and smaller. So you don't hit that pain button quite as much. But when you hit it, it really affects you just as much. And oftentimes, it's around the big first, especially that first year, the first holidays, the first birthdays. And so when my husband died, my daughter was only two. So we had a lot of birthdays and events. And so her wedding was in a very emotional time. He had a twin brother who actually spoke at the wedding and I think brought at least everybody in my side of the family just in tears. So there are times that we miss that person in all that we had dreamed about and they're missing these really important milestones here. I guess my hope is that they're watching it just from a different perspective. One of the common questions people have is, when will I stop feeling this way around grief? And I think that that answered that question a lot because you're still going to have times that doesn't mean that you're doing the grief process wrong. That's just part of the grief process. One of the pieces of advice often shared around grief is to not make any major changes in the first year. And you alluded to that, but it really doesn't always come in that neat and tidy box where you can check those things off. How did that work for you? We were actually in the process of moving from Saudi Arabia to Indonesia. So it was a very difficult time because at the time of his accident, 
I had nothing back in the States. And then all of our belongings were being shipped. So they had to land in Indonesia before they could be shipped back to the States. So it was months before I could kind of get settled. And then it's hard. People love you so much. But I felt that even my parents would worry about me so much that it was just hard for me to stay there because I couldn't sleep at night and I was getting up, which meant they got up. And so I found for me that I just rented something a block or two away, that it was close enough, but I didn't have that option of not making any decisions. And you had to be cautious. And so you do rely on friends and families to help you to make sure you're making good decisions, but it is difficult. And I think maybe where that comes from, that thought of don't do anything for a year is either to escape the pain or I know my husband, when he lost his dad, he suddenly wanted to move back to where his mom was, like things like that to kind of fix that pain or correct things you feel like were you didn't do well enough or something like that. You mentioned that not only did you become a young widow, it also really impacted your parenting journey as well. What were some of those challenges? So I always say that all of a sudden, I went from having a partner that we parented together to being an only parent. And I had to learn how to, during those rough times, to say, hey, no, this isn't right. I mean, there are many times as a child who was young as two that needed parenting. And so early on, thankfully, I had a good friend that said, hey, do you notice every time your daughter cries, I want my daddy, you give in to whatever she asked for. And so that prompted me to go and get some parenting classes and to work on that and to make sure that I didn't have my daughter parenting me right? Mm -hmm. I noticed that sometimes if I was teary, she would come over and make sure I was okay. And I had to make sure that I was her parent. And I had to make sure that I had a strong base of support so that she got to stay being a child. And again, those come back at different times. When she was in middle school, those were rough years for her. If there was a daddy-daughter dance, she didn't have a daddy. And I could never say, wait till your dad gets home. And I had to make all of the decisions for her with the support of others. But still, it really came down to being an only parent. I thought when we had our conversation over the phone before this podcast, when you said that, it really hit me that you weren't a single parent, but an only parent. And that really does put it in perspective. There's no one that's going to carry that. Even as life goes on and changes happen, you are the only parent. And that gave me a different perspective hearing that. So how did you learn to care for yourself during this time? Because you mentioned even with your daughter coming alongside and wanting to comfort you, what were some things that you really found helpful as you tried to walk this out? Well, probably within the first couple of months, I found a support group. And that was very, very helpful for me. What was very helpful about the support group, besides the curriculum and the material that we learned, is I had other people that were going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. And if I was having a bad day, I knew which one in the support group was going to probably be up at two in the morning and I was going to call them. And I really, this came to me just recently, this past weekend, when I had a client who said, when I'm having a bad day, I don't answer the phone because 
I don't want people to feel pity for me or I don't, I know they can't do anything for me. So I just don't answer the phone. So we talked about some support groups that she could get into so that she didn't have to feel when somebody's walking that journey with you, they don't feel pity for you. And I don't even think your friends do, but it's how we take it Mm -hmm. because people feel uncomfortable if we're crying and it's okay to cry. And sometimes we need to cry. And so support group for me is so much more than the information given, but it's those relationships that you create. We talked about there's quite a few different local support groups. Some can just be geared towards all sorts of grief. But then there was a recent one that I connected with called the Modern Widows Club that really is geared just towards (laughs) widows and has a social component. And that was one of the things that has frequently been mentioned, I know, as people encounter this journey, just the difference in socializing. Of course, my husband died over 30 years ago, so we didn't have the pandemic and the support Mm -hmm. group was in person. It definitely, this pandemic has compounded the loneliness and and not the social interactions and so limiting the support. But yes, you told me about the Modern Widows Club and they actually meet at Canopy, I think tonight. Anyway, it's once a month and it is an awesome resource as far as they have a national organization and you can go on and they have podcasts and they have some Facebook. I actually listened to one of the posts. I can see that it would be very beneficial. Sometimes, just like you said, finding someone that you could call up on it, one of those hard days where that ball is hitting that button and maybe not even have to use the words because they they know too. And that's just kind of like what I experience in 12-step programs is, is someone just being able to know, even if it's not exactly the same, they know enough to know what that's like. You also talked about just everybody having a different grief process. Not everyone looks the same. So everybody's going to grieve differently. Sometimes it's hard if you have, say, a death of a younger person and parents are going to grieve differently and they don't understand it. But even for me, my grief was different than his parents' grief and his siblings' grief. And so when somebody has a different grief, we're not to judge their grief. They're going to do things differently and what works for them. And there's not a linear process. It's not like you go through one, two, three, four, five, right? Everybody goes ups and downs and there's different ways. And I've seen this recently But somebody else's grief does not diminish yours, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. If somebody is really grieving hard, that doesn't mean that your grief is any less. We had a post today on that comparison, and there's just that tendency as human beings to compare ourselves and using that as a guide to say, oh, well, they're here, so there must be something wrong with me because I'm not. One of the other things you mentioned is being alone, being okay, but not necessarily isolating. What did that look like for you? So there's a difference of being alone in loneliness. So, and it's a mental difference. Not isolating is. People want to help, but you have to be willing to invite them in. For some people, it's very hard. For some of us, we will help anyone, but we don't want to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And there's <laughs> That's a, a common thing in nurses and counselors. <laughs> yes. And so it's like recognizing, no, I really do need help. I can't do this alone. Probably my daughter pushed me to do that because it's like, 
I have to take care of myself because I have to take care of a child and I can't take care of someone else if my cup is empty. Well, and you even mentioned the idea of routine and the fact that you did have a child. So you did have to get up in the morning and keep that routine going, which was actually helpful for you. I think everyone needs a reason to get up and get dressed and do something for that day. And it's okay to have those sad days and stay in, but day after day, that's is where it becomes dangerous. And that depression is a normal step of the grief process. But if you get stuck in that depression, you need to get extra help. Were there some things that you found helpful when that pain button got hit or things that you knew might trigger that, such as birthdays and anniversaries? Was there a way that you prepared for that? There's not a good way. And I tried many different ways. I mean, our anniversary was a big trigger for probably 10 years, right? So the first five, I always just felt miserable. So then I decided, well, I'm not going to use distraction to do that because I tried to stay busy and it didn't really help. So then I was like, okay, I'm just going to kind of take this week off. But then I still didn't feel great and it still hurt. And then I was like, it's okay. It's okay to hurt. It's okay. That's the time to take out the memory books or that's the time to do something special and to keep his memory alive. I love that's one of the ways some families have come in and made mosaic hearts together on a certain anniversary or, or something, one of these days that might bump up against that button for them. So they've planned to come in and just taken that time to reminisce about their loved one and spend time together and make hearts. And that's been a beautiful thing to see. I think one of the common questions Am I going to find happiness again after this loss? So even though there's those times where the pain button's getting hit, do you believe that you'll find happiness again? Well, yes, I do believe you find happiness again. So I follow a man, Kane Ramsey, and he's in the UK, but he really talked about, I was listening to one of his conversations about the difference between happiness and purpose. And he said, you can eat chocolate and become happy. But if you have purpose in your life, you will find that true joy. And so I think you can be happy and have joy, right? Mm -hmm. But joy is more long-term. It's not quite as fleeting. So you can create that next purpose. So they have added just this past year or two, the sixth stage of the grief, and that is purpose. And it's not the purpose of the person's death, but it's the purpose of their life and your purpose now that you've had that experience. Are there resources that you found helpful in your journey? Early on in my journey, I actually I did a lot of devotional work. I got a lot of chicken souls, <laughs> soup for the souls book, looking for some uplifting moments. I really started writing in a gratitude journal. And the gratitude journal was very helpful. And I didn't really realize it till years later when I went back and I kind of read it. It helped me at more from just gratitude journal to a, a hope journal. And, and it really, a lot of the things happened. And now evidence-based research shows that a gratitude journal can help rewire your brain. And so my rule was, is I could only be grateful for things once, right? Because I needed to be looking for something 
that I was grateful for not saying the same things over and over, my daughter, the house and, and that. So I remember one day was particularly hard and I was having a hard time being happy that day. So I went out on the back porch and I saw a butterfly fly by. And so for that day, I was grateful for a butterfly. But every day I made sure because we can focus on all our sad feelings or we can go out and sit there. Something good happened today. Let me remember it. And if nothing's good happened yet, go out and create it. I love that. One of the things we did when COVID started was a hope to cope challenge. And it was the idea that is something that I'd done years ago, which was to find an accountability partner or someone that you text or email or however you want to contact them, but every day giving them five things that you're grateful for. And so it was that person didn't have to say anything back. It wasn't that it needed to be commented on, but it's that thought of, okay, I know that I'm going to have to look for this throughout the day because I'm going to have to share that with someone at the end of the day, which really puts different glasses on when you're walking through your life. I know that you brought in a whole stack of books. So what did you find helpful? There's the promise of a new day and and we'll post these in the show notes, but then your daily walk. Was it that idea of just knowing you had a reading that wasn't super long or a lot to process, but something every day? It was that every day and every day I looked for something happy. You know, I remember the road less travel and one of those things was it starts as life is difficult. And that is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. And so looking for just short things, partly because when you're grieving, your attention span is short. Mm -hmm. And when you have a two-year-old and a three-year-old, your attention span is short. So it was just small things, but it would give me hope going forward. And you also mentioned with the gratitude journal that it was so helpful being able to go back and see that later on and see how those different things came true. And that it also looked more in your mind, like a, a way forward as far as purpose and seeing those dreams. Yes. And I will tell clients now, you know, when you're having a bad day, go back and read everything you've written in your gratitude journal. Because sometimes we get stuck in our sadness and our grief. And then we forgot that, hey, two days ago was really a good day. We're just, we feel so hard in that moment. So yes, short term, you can go back and look and find that beneficial. But long term, it was when I found that journal 10 years after I was like, wow, I could really see my journey and know that I was in a better place. I think too, it gives us comfort when we hit those other times that are difficult in our life. That's one way I've used my gratitude journal is to go back and be reminded, okay, like all this happened before when I was going through a difficult time, this isn't going to be any different, you know, but in our mind, sometimes in the moment in the pain, we're like, there's no way there's going to be good come, you know, all those things that we tell ourselves. So that's given me a concrete way to look back and say, well, actually, all these other times it worked out. So we always end with a story of hope. What would you like to leave the audience with today? You just kind of alluded to it a little bit is the good thing about being old is I have experienced a lot of different things. And I know that those moments of sadness will not last. That moment of grief will not last. And as long as we keep trying to be the best version of ourselves, 
we can be happy, right? Mm -hmm. We'll make mistakes along the road. There'll be bumps along the road, but there'll also be great joy and great happiness along the road. And we just have to be willing to take those moments when we do hit a bump in the road and know that it's okay and this too will pass. It's easier to do it now than it was when I was in my 20s and 30s. And how do you feel like you've used that purpose moving forward? Kane Ramsey, who does this 365 Days of Personal Growth, says, how could you use your experience in life so far to help someone else move forward? And I think that's what I do in my practice, right? I don't judge, but I also know that I've had a lot of the similar experiences and that just take one day at a time and move forward. And so with my losses, with my grief, I'm a breast cancer survivor. I can relate to a lot of different people's issues. Mm -hmm. So it gives you a different ability to hold space for someone because you've had to hold that space for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Maureen, for coming in and, and talking about this. I know that there's someone who needs this information today. If they want to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? So on my website, mcclellancounseling.com, you can go there and you can see my practice is right there close to Market Square. It's wonderful. I have quite a bit of walk-talk therapy Mm -hmm. and I like that. I'm close enough. We have a lake that we can walk around, but we're also close enough to the waterway and the weather is beautiful right now. So I do a lot of that, but I would be happy. I do free 10-minute consultations for anyone. And if I'm not the right fit for you or you, you're right, I will try to refer you often to Mosaics of Mercy <laughs> to help with that referral process. Because I think it's important for someone who's seeking mental health to get somebody who's going to be the right fit for them. Mm-hmm. So go to my website, look at my bio and see, just like you would do for any counselor that you needed to seek out help with. Yes. And Maureen's information is also on our website under resources. And like she mentioned, we're here to help connect you to any resources you need for your journey and to find that right fit. We know, especially with grief, that's one of those niches that it's really important to find a counselor that understands that process. So listen today and share this with someone else. There's someone you know that needs to hear this information. And we thank you so much for joining us.